The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. We know that before we start our study of God's Word, it's important for us to be in fellowship, and that is achieved by confessing our sins privately to God the Father, admitting, acknowledging our sins, and we know that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin our study of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we have Your Word, that it is perspicuous in our lives, showing the truth of who we are, what we need. It is our path to reality, our guide to reality. We pray that as we study Your Word this morning, that God the Holy Spirit will make these things clear to us so that we can orient our lives to the truth of Your Word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Now last week we started this sixth verse, and just to remind you of where we are, Paul is writing this letter to the Galatian churches in south, what is now south-central Turkey, and he really begins by just reaming them out because of the, their defection from the truth of the gospel. He starts off by saying, I am amazed, or I am shocked, I am astounded, I am appalled, because you have so quickly deserted Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Now, we noted last week when we looked at this that, that they were the ones who deserted Christ. Christ did not desert them. And that relates to the doctrine of eternal security, which is very important for everybody to understand. Eternal security means that our relationship with God is unbreakable. It depends exclusively on the character of God. It doesn't depend on anything that we do, but it depends totally on on who He is, His character, and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins in toto, completely. He went, the last thing He said on the cross before He died was that it is finished. That meant that everything was paid for, nothing need be added to it. If it is complete, then we cannot add to it through our works or through our efforts. It is not up to us to maintain our salvation. It is up to God to maintain that salvation. It is nothing but arrogance to think that there is something that we do will surprise God. There's some sin we can commit that God didn't make provision for in eternity past and that somehow we're going to do something that takes away everything that God has done for us. And we talked some last week about all the phenomenal blessings that God provides for us at the moment of salvation. There are some 40 different things that God does for us at the moment of salvation. And to think that we would lose our salvation would mean that we would 
uh, God would reverse himself on all of those, that instead of making us spiritually alive, he would have to kill us spiritually, make us spiritually dead again. He would take us out of the body of Christ. We would lose the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We would lose the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We would lose our position in Christ. All of these things would be destroyed if we were to lose our salvation. It's nothing but heresy and blasphemy against the character of God for anyone to think that they can do something that would cause God to take away their salvation. For that impugns the very character of God and thinking that God has given salvation and then He takes it away. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone and our security is in the character of God and in the work of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We saw this in a couple of important passages. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13. We read, Faithful is the Word. If we died with Him, and we have, we shall be with Him. If we endure in suffering for blessing, we shall rule with Him. If we deny Him, that means if we were to turn our back on our salvation 20 minutes later and say, well, I really don't believe that, then He will deny us, and that's in relationship to rewards. That's in relationship to, to our position at the judgment seat of Christ, which has to do with our position in eternity. It doesn't have to do with our location in eternity. Our location is determined at that instant that we make that decision for Jesus Christ. You know, that is the most important decision anybody will ever make. It has to do with their eternal life. The greatest problem you and I will ever face is the problem of sin. We study the, the whole doctrine of adverse, doctrines related to adversity and suffering on uh, Wednesday nights in, in our study of James. And what we're learning there is that if God solved the greatest problem that you and I will ever face, then any of the other problems that we face on a day-to-day basis are nothing compared to the greatest problem, which is our, um, our sinfulness, the problem of our spiritual death, and our eternal uh, condemnation. So 2 Timothy 2 says, If we deny Him... He will deny us, but if we are unfaithful, that is, if we, if we uh, disbelieve, even so, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Another critical passage on eternal security has to do with the sealing of the Holy Spirit, that at the moment of our salvation, God the Holy Spirit puts His seal, that's His seal of ownership on us. It's like out west when they brand cattle. Once that brand's on there, you may try to change it. And that's what the old rustlers would do is they would come in and they would uh, uh, sometimes take a cinch ring off of a saddle and they would heat that cinch ring. That's why they were called cinch artists. They would take that cinch ring and they would heat it up in, the, in a fire and then they would use that cinch ring to create a, 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 or to change and alter the brand that was already there. And the way they would catch a rustler is if they thought the cattle had been, uh, had been rustled and they would kill one of the, one of the cows and they would skin it because when you turned it over and looked at the inside of the hide, you could tell what the original brand was. You can't permanently remove it. And that's the same idea with the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be permanently removed. It can't be removed at all. Once it's there, it's there forever and ever. And Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, when you believed, you were also sealed by means of the Holy Spirit. This is a permanent sealing that takes place at the moment of salvation. You have God's stamp of ownership on you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can do everything in your power, and other people may try to do things in their power 
to remove that seal, but it can never be changed or altered, uh, and you will always be a child of God and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, Stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed to the day of redemption. So no matter what you do until the day of redemption, that is the resurrection when we are reach our glorified state face to face with the Lord, until that day we have the sealing of the Holy Spirit which secures our eternal destiny. Other important passages are found in John 10, 28 and 29 where Jesus was speaking and He said, I give eternal life to them. That's grace. Whenever you see the word give, if God is the subject, you should always think of grace. Grace means a free gift. Jesus says, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And that that snatching image portrays the security with which we are held by the power of God. Our eternal destiny is determined not by the works that we do or our sinfulness or disobedience or, or renouncing Christ or anything, but once you put your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, then you are in God's power and God's power is so great that nothing in heaven or earth can remove us from His, uh, from His hand. Romans 8:38 and 39 restates this. The Apostle Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, even though these Galatians had deserted God, God had not deserted them. They were given salvation as a permanent gift, although they had no longer understood the grace of Christ. There are two ways in which the gospel generally is attacked or in which God's plan is attacked. Number one is that salvation, something is always added. Faith plus. But whenever you have faith plus anything, X is a variable representing anything, faith plus anything equals nothing. You destroy faith when you add anything to it. And there's always this attempt to add good works, to add baptism, to add church attendance. Somehow we're going to impress God that Jesus just gets us in a position where we're savable and the rest of it is up to us. But Jesus does it all. He paid the price completely. And all we have to do is accept it by faith, which is a non-meritorious response. Faith is non-meritorious because faith in and of itself has no merit. Anybody can believe. It doesn't matter what nation you, you live in. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your, what your IQ is beyond a certain point. Anybody can exercise faith. And faith alone, the Gospel is very clear, it's faith alone in Christ alone. So the first way in which the gospel is attacked is a salvation. And the second, which is an outgrowth of the gospel, and in many passages the gospel includes more than simple uh, salvation, but also includes the Christian life. And the Christian life, the process of sanctification, that somehow our spiritual life is a result of works. 
And we'll get to that in the second half of this epistle that Paul is writing to say that God does all the work. The issue in the Christian life and the issue in salvation is always faith alone. Period. It is not by performing works. It is not up to us. It is not the works of the flesh that is what produces our spiritual growth, but is the grace provision of God and all of the assets that He gives us at the moment of salvation. Our central passage for understanding the gospel was in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. Very important passage. The Apostle Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I proclaim to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. By holding fast, he means at, that, at the moment in time when they heard the gospel, if they accepted it. The word which I preached is the simple gospel. This doesn't mean that they have to continue believing in order to be saved. Belief is a one-shot decision. It's not continue believing through the rest of your life. If you believe at one point in time in your life, then you have eternal salvation. If you hold fast the word, that is, if you accept it at that moment, which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. That is, if you believed the wrong thing. It's amazing how many people believe the wrong thing. Faith has an object. It is the object of faith that saves. What is the object? It's amazing how many people, when they formulate in their minds that object of faith, they just don't get it right. I remember some years ago when I was interviewing a lady for membership in the church... I asked her the simple question, if you were to die tonight on the way home from church, you're in a head-on collision, you die instantly, and you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord, and the Lord says, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? Well, this woman had been in this church, and I had just gone through a whole series of basic doctrine on salvation. She had been in that church for many years. She had been at another Bible church before that, where I know the gospel was faithfully, accurately taught for a long period of time. And uh, she sat there and scratched her head and she said, Well, I've been going to church for a long time. It took a lot of coaxing. And I never really got a clear statement of the gospel from her. It's amazing how many people have not correctly or accurately formed the object of faith in their own mind. The object of faith is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your salvation. And all you have to do is believe that Jesus died and rose again, died for you and rose again, and you have eternal life. That's it. That's what the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died as a substitute for our sins. Christ died in your place. That means you don't have to do the work. Christ did it all. Christ died as a substitute for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. Two elements are important. Number one, Christ's death is a substitute for our sins. And number two, the bodily resurrection of Christ. And that's the same message, the emphasis on both Christ's substitutionary atonement and the resurrection that Paul proclaimed in Acts 13 on his first missionary journey when he went to these um, Gentiles in Galatia. So that make the, makes the gospel very clear, and we always have to emphasize that grace means that it is a free gift. 
free means you do nothing to earn or deserve it. I'll never forget the time that I was talking with a, with a friend of mine who made the comment, because of something that I had been doing, that, boy, you're certainly earning a lot of grace. That was the most clear statement I ever heard from somebody who, who had, comes out of a, a background where they're taught that you have to earn grace. I've talked with a lot of priests. I did a master's degree in philosophy at a Catholic school, and I argued with a lot of priests that their definition of grace was that you had to earn it. And uh, here was somebody who just flat out said, you, you're earning a lot of grace. Now, that's a real oxymoron if you ask me. You can't, you can't earn grace. Grace is something that is absolutely free, and this is reiterated again and again in the Scriptures. Revelation 22.17 says, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. There is absolutely no cost to it. It is a free gift. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Ephesians 2.8-9 For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. John 1.12 says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Uh, John 6.29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him who has sent. It is faith alone. Grace means it is a free gift. All you have to do is accept it. Now, Paul continues his, his um, rebuke of the Galatians in verse 7. He finishes up verse 6. He says, Who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. You've deserted Him for a different gospel which is really not another. Now, what we find here is that the first use is of different, of two words in English, different and another. The Greek word for different is heteros. The Greek word for another is alas. They have slightly different meanings. Sometimes they're almost synonymous. But in passages in which the two are used together, there is a difference. Uh, heteros tends to emphasize something that is uh, another of a different kind, which is why it's accurately translated in the New American Standard as different. And alas, this is heteros, H-E-T-E-R-O-S, and alas is A-L-L-O-S, means another of the same kind. So what we find here is a statement that you have deserted Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a gospel of a radically different kind. It, you can't even compare it. They're not speaking synonymous things. See, that's the problem with a lot of people today. They think that certain things are synonyms. Accepting Christ... Do what? Okay, we'll move that over. Now you can see it better. Accepting Christ as your Savior is not synonymous to inviting Jesus into your heart. That's a misapplication of Revelation 3.20. Or saying, I invited Jesus into your life. Saying, if you want to trust Christ as your Savior, then you need to invite Jesus into your life. You're inviting Jesus is not the point. 
The Scriptures say He is the one who invites you. And in this very passage it says, you're deserting Him who called you. That's the invitation. Who invites who? God is the one who's inviting you to salvation. You're not the one who's inviting Jesus anywhere. So we get into, because we don't want to be precise in the way we talk, we don't want to be precise and, 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 and accurate in the way we speak, we just want to make things real, real muddled, and we think that these phrases mean the same thing, and they're not. They are not synonymous at all. There is a radical difference. And if you're saved, you think you're saved because you invited Jesus into your heart or you invited Jesus into your life, if that's all you've ever done and you've never expressed faith alone in Christ alone, then on the authority of God's Word, I'm here to tell you that you're not saved. Because Scripture does not ever say that you're saved by inviting Jesus into your heart or into your life. You are saved by believing Jesus died on the cross for your sins, accepting Him as your Savior. That and that alone is how you are saved. If you are saved by inviting Jesus into your heart, then you've been saved by what this passage calls a different kind of gospel, a false gospel, which, Paul says in verse 7, is really not another gospel of the same kind. It's really not another one. It's not the same one. The gospel is very, very clear. The scriptures are very clear. It's faith alone in Christ alone, period. Nothing added to it. Faith plus anything is nothing. So then he describes these people. In verse 7, there's always the disruptive crowd in any local church, usually at one time or another, because Satan is always out to destroy the gospel. That's his number one mission, is to destroy the gospel. Number one, it's to keep unbelievers from hearing the gospel. So he's going to block the gospel, distort it, distract, whatever, to keep unbelievers from hearing the gospel. And two, to keep believers from understanding the implications of the gospel for their spiritual life and pursuing spiritual maturity. So, as part of this, Satan uses his people to try to disrupt and distract local congregations that are speaking the truth. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, if we exegete this passage, the ones who here is the Greek, Tarasso, T-A-R-A-S-S-O. Tarasso. It's a present active participle. Present tense means that uh, it's basically an extending from the past present. That means it's referring to action that started in the, in the past and is continuing through the present time of writing. It's an active voice. That means the subject is performing the act the action of the, of the uh, participle here. And in this case, it is these Judaizers who are por- performing the action. Now, the Judaizers, that's spelled J-U-D-A-I-Z-E-R. The Judaizers are a group of Jews who are emphasizing works as part of salvation, the works of the law. That you have now that if you want to be a believer, that's great to believe in Christ, but you also have to come under the Mosaic Law and all of its uh, admonitions. So they are adding the works of the law to salvation. And it's a, um, the Judaizers are the ones performing the action of the verb, and it's a participle describing uh, the action of the, of, of the noun here. They are disturbing you. Really, they're stirring up trouble. That's what uh, terrasso means. 
Only there are some among you who are stirring up trouble and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Then we come into another participle here, which is the present active participle of thelantes, which is from the Greek main verb thelo, T-H-E-L-O, which means to will or to want to do something. Now, this verb emphasizes their volition. They have an agenda. They specifically have a goal, and that is to distract people from the truth. So, their negative volition has rejected the gospel of grace, and they're probably talking about grace. It's amazing. Every church you go to talks about grace. I don't care what the denomination is. They all talk about grace. They use it as a, as a big word, but very, very few churches really understand what grace is. They'll talk about grace. Um, one particular group that uh, is very prominent talks about grace all the time. Grace in and of itself, they'll say it's a grace that, that God sent Jesus Christ to the cross. Now, Jesus Christ died on the cross, and that then develops an entire uh, merit of blessing here. So that's all provided for you. Now, if you're going to get that, that was grace. If you're going to get that, then you have to participate in a variety of activities and sacraments and everything else in order for that merit to be applied to you. See how all of a sudden they're talking about grace, but they've restricted its meaning. And ultimately, if you're going to benefit from grace, then you have to earn the grace. Uh, You also have uh, groups like the Lordship Salvation Crowd that talks very heavily about grace, but ultimately they're going to add works on the back side of, of their gospel. And we've talked about this several times. They'll add works and say the only way you really know that you have been saved is by your life of obedience. You never have assurance of salvation until the day you die. So they add the works of your life in at the end in order to know that you're saved. So the way you maintain your salvation in Lordship salvation ultimately is through a continuous obedience to God. You, you may fail at times, but if you, over the whole distance of your life, if you haven't maintained your walk, then you never were saved. You never had real saving faith. So Thelantes here emphasizes their volition. All kinds of people talk about grace, but very few understand grace. There are some among you who want to stir up trouble and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, the word for distort is the uh, Greek word that means metastrepo, which means to change or transform. So they want to transform the gospel from the gospel of grace into a gospel of works. And the, the verb thelo in, emphasizes that they are responsible for this. It's their volition that's involved. Now, ultimately behind them is Satan. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we're told that Satan's agenda is to blind the minds of unbelievers to the truth of the gospel. So how does Satan blind men today? Well, one way in which Satan blinds men is through religion. See, Christianity, true biblical Christianity, is not a religion. A religion means that you do the work, man does the work, and then God blesses it. Whereas Christianity is a relationship. Christianity is a relationship with God. We've seen this in a number of different passages But it means that you have a personal relationship because it's based upon the fact that Jesus Christ did the work 
God does all the work, and man simply accepts it. And on the basis of the work of Christ, then, man is able to have a personal relationship with God that is not based on a series of rituals or a series of commandments or a series of uh, taboos. And this is always what man wants to do, is somehow come up with ritual or some kind of legalistic uh, rules and regulations in order to keep, um, keep, in order to get to God and impress God and have some kind of uh, uh, assurance of eternal destiny. So Satan wants to blind men through religion. Secondly, a second way he does it is through rationalism. Now I'm using this in a sort of a non-technical term, but just through reason. This is what happened in the 19th century through 19th, 19th century uh, Protestant liberalism. The idea was that if um, that man's intellectual powers are so great that we can then evaluate the Bible to find out what's true and what's false just on the basis of our own intellect. This certainly hasn't died out. You see this uh, arrogant group called the Jesus Scholars that get together every year and they have these conventions and they go through the Bible and they try to decide, they go through the Gospels and they try to decide what things the Bible says that Jesus said were really said by Jesus and what things were added later on by the church. It's that man's reason is so great. Oh, we read this and we've never seen any miracles like this, so obviously we can't believe that happened. And somebody was raised from the dead. Oh, we've, that, that never happened. So uh, uh, we can't understand the mechanics of that at all. Uh, physically, it just won't happen. Medically, it's impossible. So therefore, we have to take that out of the Bible. And uh, somebody multiplied uh, uh, fishes and loaves to feed 5,000 people. Well, that's not even even physically possible at all or walking on the water. So we have to take all those things out of the Bible. But they use reason to take away from the Bible and remove all of that from the, from the Scriptures. So... Satan blinds men through rationalism. Third, very prominent today, Satan distracts people from the gospel through emotionalism, especially through the subjectivity of a lot of mysticism that goes on today. That somehow, how do you know God? Because I feel it. You know, this is one of the greatest distractions in the gospel. How do you know? How do you know Jesus died on the cross? Through the scriptures. Period. One of the hymns that we typically sing at Easter, which I do not like to sing because of this, is the, the hymn, He Lives. And the chorus, He Lives, He Lives. Ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Well, isn't that nice? But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says, ask me how I know He lives, because there's objective reality. There's the witness of over uh, 500 people who saw the resurrected Christ. And you ask me how I know he lives, it's because eyewitnesses said so and the Bible says so, period. It's not because it made me feel good. Not because I've had a subjective experience. Not because he lives within my heart. Now, once you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's true that all three members of the Trinity take up residence in you as a believer. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all live within the believer. That's what the Scripture says. The Holy Spirit testifies to each believer with the assurance of their salvation. But this is not something that is subjective alone or purely subjective, but it is something that is based ultimately on the objective testimony of the Word of God. So Satan uses emotionalism to distract people and blind them to the gospel. And then fourth, Satan uses all the details of life, materialism details, the details of work, the details of relationships, the details of pleasures, 
All of these things get in the way so people are more consumed with living their lives and enjoying their lives and their pleasures and dealing with their problems, their adversities, their heartaches, their, their jobs, their careers, schoolwork. All of these things get in the way. And, oh, I'll, I'll worry about my relationship with God later on. But right now I have so many other things on my plate that uh, I don't have time for God. So Satan uses religion, rationalism, emotionalism, and the details of life to distort uh, the gospel and to blind our eyes to the truth of the gospel. So Paul writes here, he says, I'm amazed that you have so quickly deserted. I'm shocked that you, because you have so quickly deserted him who called you by the grace of Christ for a gospel of a radically different kind, which is really not a gospel of the same kind. Only there are some who are stirring up trouble among you and want to transform the gospel of Christ. And here we have a genitive of source. The gospel comes from the source of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who provided salvation at the cross. When He went to the cross, every sin in human history was poured out upon Him. God the Father, in His omniscience, knows all of the knowable. He knows, simultaneously knows all of the knowable. There's nothing in human history that God doesn't know about. There's no sin that you or I will ever commit that God the Father didn't know about billions and billions of years ago. And so every single sin that's ever committed by any member of the human race is poured out on the cross. And Jesus Christ, He who knew no sin, was made sin for us. God the Father imputed that sin to Jesus Christ and it was paid for completely on the, cro- on the cross. So the gospel has its source in Jesus Christ. He provides the good news that now we can have eternal life. Now, the language that Paul is using here is harsh. He's not being sweetness and light. He's not coming along and saying, isn't this wonderful? Now, you've just misunderstood the gospel a little bit. Now, let's just make sure that we get it right now. Now sit down, let me hold your hand a little bit and pat it. It's okay. We're going to get it right. He is harsh. He's strong. What this tells us, there's some issues in life that are important. We live in an era today when people don't think anything's worth being dogmatic about. That nothing in life is worth being really strong or having or holding strong opinions about. That if you do, you're just too hard-headed and stubborn and arrogant and opinionated and everybody has a right to their own opinions and therefore every opinion's right. That's the view the common man has today. But what we see here is there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong and the things that pertain to the important issue of eternal destiny, of eternal salvation, are worth making a federal case about. And Paul does this here. His language is very harsh and many hypersensitive people would just say, how can you be a Christian, Paul, and talk to me that way? But Paul is really slapping them in the face with his whole attitude here with the language that he's using to get their attention that they have totally destroyed the gospel they're, 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 they've screwed everything up and they, they've just gotten away into a completely false gospel and then in verse 8 he says but even though we are an angel from heaven and he uses a figure of speech here called hyperbole now hyperbole means exaggeration he's going to go to the farthest extent the greatest use of exaggeration to show To make his point, even if we are an angel from heaven, should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. 
Even though we are an angel from heaven. Now, he doesn't mean by this that an angel is going to ever proclaim the gospel. That would be a false, a false concept to derive from this. He's saying, but even if this were the case, even in the most extreme case you can ever imagine, you take the most extreme case possible, and even under those circumstances, if you were to hear the gospel from an angel or from anyone else, and it differed from the one we proclaim to you, then it would be a false gospel. Because what we have been proclaiming to you is the absolute truth. Even though we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached, let him be accursed. And the Greek word here is anathema. This is an incredibly strong uh, word for cursing in the Greek. It's A-N-A-T-H-E-M-A. And if we were to put it in a common vernacular for us, we would say, if, even though we are an angel from heaven, should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him rot in hell. That's his point. This is serious. The gospel is the most important issue people will ever make. It's the most important issue in your life. It's a, to make the gospel clear is the most important issue in anybody else's life. That's why as a pastor, one of the highest priorities is to make sure that the gospel is clear and that the Word of God is taught clearly. So in light of that, I want to go over the gospel or the work of salvation in a little more detailed fashion because it's important for you as believers to truly understand the gospel. The more you work on understanding all of the dynamics of what took place on the cross the more important it is, or the, or the easier it will be, for you to make the gospel clear to people when you, uh, when you witness to them. Man was created in the Garden of Eden, and he was given a test of his volition. That test was very simple, and it involved a tree. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the issue was whether he would obey God and not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or whether he would disobey God. Man was created, so we have man, and, and at that time, man was in the image of God, and he had perfect righteousness. And there was a, a, a relationship of harmonious rapport between God and the man. And then God created the woman as a partner for the man, and Adam and the woman lived together in the garden in perfect environment for, uh, we don't know how long, could have been a few days, could have been a few months, and could have been uh, many, many more years. But for however long they lived in the Garden of Eden, they continued to obey God. And then Satan came along, uh, tempted the woman first. He perceived that she was the weak link, weak link in the chain. Tempted the woman first, and she succumbed to the temptation, ate of the fruit, and then she tempted the man. He succumbed, and they went negative to God, disobeyed Him, and a barrier was erected between God and man. So that when God came to walk in the garden with the man and the woman as He did every day, and at that time they had a great conversation together, I assume that, that it was during that time that God taught, uh, was teaching Adam and the woman many things about the creation, many things about their relationship to one another. And now on this particular day when God comes to walk in the garden, the man and the woman run and hide. Now this barrier that is erected is comprised of several different ingredients, which we'll just call bricks. The first is the problem of sin itself. 
Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every human being is a sinner and cannot measure up to God's standards. So here we have Romans 3.23 and also Isaiah 64.6. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All our works of righteousness are as filthy rags in the sight of God. So Isaiah 64.6 clearly describes the problem is that our sin prevents us from having any kind of relationship with God. The next brick in the barrier has to do with the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is spiritual death. For the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 The way a wage is something you earn for what you do. What we earn for what we are, what we do is spiritual death. Spiritual death is eternal separation from God. So the second brick in the barrier has to do with the penalty of sin. The third brick in the barrier has to do with our physical birth. We are born in Adam. Adam was both our federal head, that means he's a representative. We have a, in the United States of America, we do not we're moved, we have moved towards a democracy, but we really have more of a federal republic. We have a federal form of government. That means we send representatives to Washington. And they represent us, so their decision, decisions are virtually our decisions. That doesn't mean we agree with their decisions, but because they are our representative, their decisions are our decisions. Well, Adam's decision as our federal head, as the federal head of the human race, was our decision in Adam all die. Also, Adam is our genetic head so that we are physically, biologically related to Adam so that the, the penalties, the consequences of sin which affected everything in nature, the natural realm, the physical realm, everything was affected by Adam's uh, sin of disobedience to God so that by virtue of our physical birth and our physical relationship to Adam, we are all guilty of Adam's sin both federally and spiritually. So passages for this would be Genesis 2, 17, uh, Romans 5, 12, and Ephesians 2, 1. Ephesians 2, 1, being born dead in our trespasses and sins. So the problem is our physical birth, we are born spiritually dead. Then we have a problem. Righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6a and Romans 9. 30 to 33. Romans 9, 30 to 33. Also, Romans uh, chapter 2 says, There is none that doeth good, no, not one. That uh, as far as the Word of God is concerned, there's not a single human being, no matter how good they are, can measure up to the perfect righteous standard of God. God is both perfect righteousness and perfect justice. The righteousness of God is His absolute standard. The justice of God is the application of that standard. Whatever the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God provides through the blessing, through the grace of God, uh, through the love of God is expressed through the grace of God. So that what the righteousness of God uh, rejects, the justice of God condemns, but the uh, uh, love of God provides a solution through the grace of God. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses, through the love of God as expressed through the grace of God. So God's righteousness is His perfect 
standard and because man cannot come up to that perfect standard of God, he stands condemned. So he has the problem of relative righteousness. And then the fifth brick in the barrier has to do with the character of God as I've just explained it. Because God is perfect righteousness and perfect justice, man cannot measure up to God and therefore stands condemned. And then the sixth brick is our position in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.22 In Adam all die. So this is our problem. This is the sin barrier that is erected between God and man. Now God in His grace provided a perfect solution to every aspect of the sin problem. These are the doctrines related to salvation. The sin problem was taken care of by two doctrines. Redemption and unlimited atonement. The basic idea of redemption is that a price was paid. Redemption means to pay a price. It comes from the Greek word or translates the Greek word agorazo, which has to do with buying something in the marketplace. The agora was the Greek name for the marketplace. We talk about people who have a uh, mental problem called agoraphobia. That means they're afraid to go outside, to go into the marketplace. Agorazo means to purchase something in the marketplace. And another word translated redemption is ex agorazo, which means to buy something out of the marketplace. Uh, redemption passages for redemption are Ephesians 1 7 and 1 Peter 1 18 and 19, where we're told that we were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and he purchased us out of the slave market of sin. That is redemption. Unlimited atonement means that the extent of that redemption applies to every single human being. It's unlimited atonement. Christ did not die just for those who would believe. Christ died for everyone. He actually removed the the problem of sin. Every sin is paid for. So the issue no longer is, are you going to pay for your sin? The issue is, are you going to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? At the judgment, at the final, uh, final judgment, the great white throne judgment, the issue there is not sin. God is never going to bring sins up to you or me again at the judgment seat of Christ and at the great white throne judgment. The issue is not sin. It's human good. It's whether man's good deeds have measured up to the perfect righteousness of God. So they're going to come along and God's going to line item every good deed that the unbelievers done and say, well, are you good enough? And no, it doesn't stack up to the righteousness of God. So therefore, they're not going to have eternal life. The issue at the, at the uh, great white throne judgment is not going to be sin because that's already been paid for. The issue there is human good. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin that the human race will ever commit and every single human being. 1 John 2, 2. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. 2 Corinthians 5.14 And 1 Timothy 4.10 for it, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. 1 Timothy 4.10 
Christ's salvation extends the, uh, or His death paid the penalty for the sins of every single human being. It is unlimited in its scope. So redemption and unlimited atonement took care of the sin problem. The penalty of sin was taken care of by the doctrine of expiation. Expiation means to remove a debt. We have a debt against us because of our sin. This is Colossians 2.14 that says that all our debts were nailed to the cross. Expiation. All our debts are nailed to the cross. Christ paid for everything. Physical birth is resolved by the problem of regeneration. This is in John chapter 3, 1 to 18. Regeneration. We are born spiritually dead, and at the moment of salvation, uh, God the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit. It simultaneously is uh, given to us, and at that moment, God the Father imputes to that human spirit eternal life so that we have a new life in Christ. The problem of physical birth is resolved by the problem of spiritual rebirth, regeneration. That's in John 3, 1 through 18. The problem of our relative righteousness is dealt with by the doctrine of the imputation of perfect righteousness. The doctrine of imputation means to credit or, or legally declare as one's possession perfect righteousness. 1 Corinthians uh, 1.30, 2 Corinthians 5.21 make this clear that at the moment of our salvation, God the Father credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because we now possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, God the Father declares us just, justified. Justification does not mean just as if I had never sinned. I heard that all the time going through seminary. doesn't mean just as if I had never sinned. It means that you are justified by God. You are declared righteous or just because you possess the perfect righteousness of God. The character of God problem is resolved by the doctrine of propitiation. Propitiation means that God the Father is satisfied. That's what propitiate means. It means to satisfy, that His perfect righteousness and justice are satisfied. What the righteousness of God condemns or rejects, the justice of God condemns. But when we possess the perfect righteousness of God, what the righteousness of God approves now, because we have the perfect, His perfect righteousness, the justice of God can bless through eternal life. Because God's righteousness and justice are satisfied, we can have eternal life. So the character of God problem is resolved through uh, propitiation. Romans 3:22 through 26 and 1 John 2:2. 2, 2. Uh, skipped verses here back up on relative righteousness is resolved by imputation and by justification. Verses for justification are Romans 4, 1 through 5 and Galatians 2:16. Romans 4, 1 through 5 and Galatians 2:16. Propitiation is Romans 3. 22 to 26, and 1 John 2 2. 1 John 2 2. Finally, our position in Adam is, re- is resolved by our new position in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 22b. At the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are placed in union with Jesus Christ. 
So, for as in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. We're no longer in Adam. We are, at the moment of salvation, placed in Christ, where we have eternal life. Now, all of this is part of the gospel. That's why it's so important to get the gospel right. As you can see from this, so much was performed by Jesus Christ on the cross that to think that we can add anything to it is absolutely absurd. That's why Paul is so harsh with these uh, Galatian believers is because that, that, that if you add anything to works, it dis- I mean to, to, sal- to uh, faith alone, it destroys salvation. So he says, Even though we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which, you, which we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Let him rot in hell. Verse 9, he repeats it. He's not being emotional. He's not being histrionic. He's not going off the deep end. He wants to make it very clear that they get the point. And we have said before, so I say again. In other words, what it says in the Greek is what I just said to you right now, I'm going to repeat for emphasis. I want to make sure you understand this. If any man is preaching, proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be anathema. Let him rot in hell. It is a false gospel. It won't get you anywhere. And then he concludes in verse 10 by saying, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? He's just gotten through reaming them out. He's just blasting them. He says, Now, you've been saying that I'm just out here trying to please people with this gospel of grace, that I'm teaching this because it makes it easy for people. You've just seen my attitude. I'm just He just blistered them. He says, Am I trying to please men? No, I'm not trying to please men. I'm not in this for approbation. Trouble is, so many people in the ministry are in it for approbation. In fact, last night, as I was uh, sitting down, I just channel flipped through the channels and I ran across a movie called Mass Appeal starring Jack Lemmon. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it or not. But he's an older priest and he's got a younger man who's a new priest and he's talking to them and he says, and I just turned it in right at this moment. I'd never seen, I'd never seen the movie. And he's giving him some instruction. He says, now you can have convictions and you can have dogmatic convictions but never talk about them from the pulpit because everybody out there in the pew has, they have their strong opinions and if you disagree with them, they're going to fire you and you're going to be out of here. He says, now, you just give them nice little sermons, make them feel good and then they'll approve of you and you'll feel good and that's why I'm here is it just makes me feel you never get, get a good feeling like this from anything else. Unfortunately, that's the attitude of a lot of churches, I mean a lot of pastors, and that's what a lot of congregations want is a pastor who's going to come in and just tell them whatever it is they want to hear and stroke their approbation lust and then they stroke the approbation lust of the pastor. But the point that Paul is making here is that now he's not trying to to curry any favor with them. That's the sense of that word. Am I seeking the favor of men? Am I trying to curry the favor of men or, or, or of God? What's the issue here? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, and that's a second class condition in the Greek, if I were still trying to please men and I'm not, I would not be a bondservant, a doulos, a slave of Christ. Now the point is, you're either as a, as a pastor and a minister, you're either trying to do two things. Seek the approbation of men or serve Christ. That's the alternative. There's no other option. Either you're serving Christ or you're trying to please men. 
Now, one of the problems that I've seen in the ministry is that a lot of churches want you to serve them, not Christ. And, and they get the mistaken notion that because they pay your salary, that you work for them. And I can't tell you how many churches I've talked to where it doesn't, it, it doesn't take long before it's clear when you're talking to the, um, to the board of deacons that they really view the pastor as their employee. And the pastor is not the employee of the local church. It's clear right here. He's not the servant of the local church. He's not the servant of the deacons. He's not the servant of men. He is the servant of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that he just runs uh, rampant over the congregation and there are no controls because the congregation certainly can call him to accountability for, for doctrine on the doctrinal statement and under some cases should take action to remove a man from the pulpit when he gets into false doctrine. But they should be very, very careful in how they handle doing that lest they they risk the uh, judgment of the condemnation of the Supreme Court of Heaven. But the issue is the pastor is there to serve Christ. That's why the pastor is there. He's there to teach doctrine. He's there to communicate the truth of the gospel. And it doesn't matter how people respond. Because sooner or later... I'm going to step on everybody's toes here. And it's not me, it's the Scriptures. Because there's a lot of things in the Scriptures that you know, I find hard to, to take because they step on my toes. But it's what the Scripture says that count. It's not my opinions. It's not your opinions. It's what does God say. That's the point. And any pastor worth his salt is going to come in and teach the Word of God irregardless of, of what happens. He's going to let the chips fall wherever they fall because the issue is teaching the truth. The issue is not making sure people like you or people accept you or people give you all those nice strokes and say all those nice things about how wonderful you are and what a great person you are. Then you're just operating on the approbation lust of the sin nature. The issue is clear. Make the gospel clear and make doctrine clear. The scripture is the final authority. It's not your opinion. It's not my opinion. It's what does the scripture say. That's the issue. Let's bow our heads and Closing prayer. Father, we thank you for the clearness of Scripture. We thank you for the sufficiency of Scripture. Thank you for the power of Scripture. For the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing us under the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a critic or a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of of the soul. Father, your word should always drive deeply within our souls, within our thinking, to cause us to see what reality is and to align ourselves with it. And the most fundamental rule of reality is the issue of our sin and your grace provision for it in the gospel. We thank you for your provision, your comprehensive, sufficient provision of Jesus Christ who paid it all, that we add nothing to that, that all we have to do, all anyone has to do to be saved, is to believe in Jesus Christ. It's a simple act of non-meritorious faith. There are no works involved. There's no uh, joining the church. There's no attempt to uh, somehow maintain that afterwards. That's in your hands. All that is required of us is simple faith, because it is the object of faith who did all the work. So, Father, now as we continue the morning with time to uh, be together in fellowship and then return in the second hour, pray that the Holy Spirit would make all these things clear to us and that we would be able to apply them 
to our spiritual growth, that we may continue to pursue spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.